Thanks for taking the time to listen to this NHS Employers podcast. For all the latest NHS HR workforce information, visit www.nhsemployers.org. Welcome to the first NHS Employers Virtual Board podcast. This recording was taken from a panel discussion featuring Steve Shrub, Chief Executive of West London Mental Health NHS Trust, Clive Lewis, Non-Executive Director at Gloucestershire Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust, and Jeff Buggle, Director of Finance and Performance Management at East Kent Hospitals University NHS Foundation Trust. Um, so I'm Steve Shrub, I'm Chief Executive of West London Mental Health Trust. Uh, we're a uh... Um, uh, a single speciality mental health trust. We're a little unusual. We have one of England's three special hospitals. So we provide very specialist services all the way down to local services. So I'm the CEO. I've been there for 12 months. Uh, It's an interesting organisation and it's got some really big challenges around culture. So if you (coughs) go online and look at the staff survey, it's had a really um, not very good staff survey for some time. So my role has been to come in and amongst the other things that CEOs do is to try and get under the skin of that. So um, I joined the NHS um, as a domestic. So I'm a clinician by background. I I, uh, was a nurse and then uh, uh, became a cognitive behaviour therapist. Um, I've run uh, mental health institutes, and I worked in the NHS Confederation running the mental health network. So, to cut to the chase, I'm very clear about why health and well-being is important to me. Uh, the evidence, uh, and the guy that I tend to follow is Professor Michael West from Lancaster University. So the evidence is absolutely clear that engaged, informed, valued, healthy staff provide significantly better outcomes. And those outcomes cut across all of the functions. I'm sure my finance colleague will quote, better engaged staff come from organisations which are financially better. So the evidence is absolutely clear. And my background as a cognitive behaviour therapist tells me that we aren't impotent when it comes to health and wellbeing. There are a whole number of things we can do. Um, And I'm particularly interested in stealing ideas. So... I'm a bit of a bit of a magpie and I, I steal ideas. So we're doing some stuff in the trust which is quite unusual, which I've stolen from abroad. And in my last job I ran a network of all the mental health providers in England. So I stole everything I could. So uh, but I've also stolen a lot from the not not for profit and the for profit sector, uh, where we can learn an awful lot about how as organisations we can actually look after our staff. So that's where I come from. I don't come from it because I want to be loved and as a cuddly, warm chief exec, although we all do because we've got very healthy egos. I come from it because the evidence is stark. Uh, um, look after your staff, your best resource. And if you do, the outcomes are hugely <coughs> better than you will get from any random uh, approach. Okay, thank you very much. Um, Good afternoon, everyone. As you know, my name is Clive Lewis, and I think compared to my colleagues uh, that I'm joined by here today, I'm uh, the new boy. <laughs> I'm only three years in the NHS. Um, I've just been reappointed for my second term as a, another three years as a uh, non-executive director. The hospital that 
I'm from is, um, it's two hospitals, two district hospitals, one at Gloucester and the other uh, at Cheltenham. We have uh, around 8,000 staff, uh, revenue of about 400 um, million pounds or there or, or, or thereabouts. Um, my interest, I, I guess, in this topic is um, very similar to, to what we've just heard. Slightly different perspective though, because um, I'm from the private sector primarily. I grew up in, in retail, working with organisations such as the Dixons Group and the Kingfisher Group. When I was at the Dixons Group, we were involved in a project which was called My Customer, My Responsibility. What that project told us was that the better people feel about themselves, uh, both in terms of how they're treated and both in terms of how they feel physically, there's a direct correlation between that and how customers are treated and how customers are likely to come back and make repeat purchases. So now, in some of our board meetings where we often refer to patients as customers, that comes flooding back. And the correlation is very clear to me in that if you feel better about yourself, you are much more likely to pass that on to the customers that you are, um, that you are treating. Um, I mentioned that I'm fairly new to the um, NHS, just, just three years. My day job is uh, as a HR specialist. Um, two, two areas really that I work in. One is in dispute resolution. I, I mediate uh, disputes quite extensively. Um, and I also do some work for a small social enterprise in the healthcare uh, sector. Um, a number of years ago, I also started to, to write. Um, my, my ninth book is just about to, to come out. Uh, but as one of the books that I've written, it's about work-life um, balance. So when I got the call about whether I might be able to be, or whether I would be willing to make a, a contribution, some of the things that I've been writing about and experience and, and been experiencing at my own trust um, really came to, to my mind. I think finally what I would, what I would say is, as a non-executive director in my own trust, I see how health and well-being is taken seriously in our performance metrics that we look at at the board session every month. We track sickness and absence. We are also looking at what the cost is to, um, or to our organisation, and maybe I can touch on that a bit later on, depending on the questions that are, that are asked. Thank you. Good afternoon, my name is Jeff Bubble. Uh, I'm the Director of Finance and Performance at East Kent Hospitals, which is based uh, around the southeast of England, uh, Canterbury, Ashford, and Margate. <coughs> We're a £500 million uh, acute foundation trust. Um, as of the month four results, we don't have a deficit, that's always a good thing for me. Um, and I've been, a, I've been in the NHS since uh, leaving school. Um, and been a finance director now for some sort of 18 years working in foundation trusts or teaching hospitals. Um, and any of my colleagues who, from the trust who were to, you were to ask, would say that I'm a really unreasonable, this is on a good day, I'm a really unreasonable, really hard uh, finance director. And the reason I find this, when I was asked to be involved in this, I, I, I was quite surprised because uh, I think this really makes sense. 
I think that any organisation that doesn't think this makes sense is somehow missing it. All the evidence, all the literature, either public, private sector, tells you this makes sense. And it makes sense in hard numbers as well as uh, slightly more ethereal or softer things. Uh, and if, if anything from things like Francis or other reports about staff engagement is so crucially important. And in my time in East Kent, which is about two and a half, three years now, we've tried to initiate a number of initiatives and projects to really engage with staff and really promote staff involvement, staff engagement, staff welfare, uh, because it simply helps the bottom line. And if I can sit all day and play golf on the computer or whatever, as opposed to worrying about the bottom line, that's a really good thing for me to do. A question for Clive. How do you, as a board member, want the organisation to identify the health and wellbeing needs of its staff? Mm, okay. Um, in a in a number of ways, um, I think I would firstly refer to um, the, the business case. So as a non-executive director and someone working outside uh, of the NHS from a on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm always interested in numbers. And um, certainly from a, a finance point of view, um, one of the things I discovered some time ago was that there's a, a correlation between sickness and absence and the bottom line. So um, in a trust with 5,000 staff, for example, a 1% reduction um, could mean an additional £1 million on the, on the bottom line. So as a non-executive non director, that would be of interest to me for an organisation, for our organisation to ensure that we are going to meet our surplus, um, surplus target. Um, I think the other element that I would touch on is having real quality data. What, what, what I find is the discussion we have about health and well-being and, and sickness and absence normally focuses on the problem. So we have absence levels of 3% if we're lucky, much more likely to be 4 maybe 5%. But that doesn't really tell us much apart from that overall figure. I, I'm much more interested in what is making up that number. So why are people off? For example, do we have a, a bulk of people with musculoskeletal issues? That's making up the bulk. Or are people off because of accidents at work, um, for example? But the other thing that I would touch on is, what about the rest of the workforce? Because you might find that actually there's a bulk of about 20% of your workforce who are contributing towards this problem. And of that 20%, maybe there's 8 or 9% that are real problems because they have absence levels of 12, 13 or 14% or, or, or higher. And it would be useful to really focus on and crack those as an issue because that would have a tremendous impact on the, on the rest of the organisation. But having said that, what about the 80% of people who, on balance, either have no time off ill or they might have one or two days off? Why do they go unrecognised and unnoticed? Why isn't something put in place to acknowledge um, to acknowledge that. So th they're just a couple of examples that I would give to you about where my interest would be in, in this topic. 
So can I ask you a question now? Yes. So what's the biggest cause of absence and pre-absence in the English workforce? The biggest cause? Mental health and well-being. Yes, mental health. So um, I would absolutely agree with everything you say, um, but it's not just people being absent. It's people's ability, their performance being affected. Um, so we, should, uh, we shouldn't wander too far away from what we know about human beings when we think about the people that work in the NHS. So how many people suffer from mental health problems? One in four. So we can make some predictions about how many of our staff in the NHS will experience mental health problems. What are the most common mental health problems? Well, they're anxiety and depression, but often the word stress is used. Mm -hmm. So there's a, there's a, there's a lot of uh, evidence, there's a lot of resource um, uh, that helps us, uh, uh, I'm just building on what mm -hmm. you're saying, make sense of the numbers. Mm -hmm. The numbers are crucial, they're critical but you can actually add colour and flavour, if you like, to those numbers. Um, and I think one of the things the NHS does not very well is, on occasions, we seem to forget that our staff are actually members of the public. They are human beings. They are members of communities. They are husbands, wives, sisters, brothers. Um, we seem to view them as public servants mm -hmm. and, and, in doing so, disconnect from a lot of what we know. So I just, I'm agreeing with everything you say we're building on it. Yes. Question for Jeff. What evidence and key messages would you need to see in a business case to make you and your colleagues listen and make a favourable decision? I, I think any business case in this area is is broadly the same as any as any other business case you would see for whether you wanted to build a new hospital, whether you wanted to buy a new piece of kit or whatever. In terms of clues, there's going to be a strong governance process around it. And I think you can identify some both some hard and soft metrics that show benefit or or uh, return and those are things as as co colleagues have, uh, have mentioned things around sickness retention um, sequent payments at the moment uh, things like friends and family tests you know I suspect most organizations in this room will have either some funding a link or associated with things like sequins or friends and family tests uh, also, a staff survey, as well as you know, there's some, I, I, and the right word isn't soft because that, that sort of almost in a sense denigrates them. But there's some things around morale, attitude, staff engagement, um, which I actually think are equally important, but in some ways often get sort of ignored in business cases by accountants or just be looking at the numbers. Um, but I think within those those areas, you can c construct a strong, robust business case that most of, you, most of your executives or your, pro, your, your process would, would say, actually, does that merit funding? And, and most of the business cases I've seen in this area do stack up, they do make sense. And of, you know, often there's almost, there is a little bit of a leap of faith in some areas, but it, there's almost, to my mind, there's almost something a bit like MRSA is to give an example, MRSA is a really good area where executives or boards should invest money to reduce MRSA. Why? Because it's right for the patient, but actually, if you even ignore the patient, it's right for your bottom line. People with MRSA stay longer, they cost a lot more. So, actually, let's eradicate MRSA, it saves me a fortune. Actually, if I had no sickness in my organization, 
at the enclosure. So actually things that, that you know, if you can call, if you can get a, almost a cause and effect of something, or as strong a link as you can, then I think you've got a very compelling business case. And a lot of business cases I've seen, see, I've probably see, seen about a dozen or so in this area, there is a, there's, there's a strong correlation between one and the other. Question for Steve. What themes would you like to see in a health and wellbeing strategy and how would you then influence the rest of the board to support it? Okay, well, uh, the, uh, when I get to the second question, I'll, give you, I'll tell you about our fishbowl, um, which is uh, uh, something that we've stolen from Harvard. Um, and I hope it works. Uh, so the first thing is, what, what, what would I like to see? Well, for me, there are three or four main elements. So the evidence tells me that, that, that engagement uh, is absolutely crucial. So just park people's health for a moment, I'll come back to that. Um, uh, so one of the building blocks of a health and wellbeing programme is a whole range of initiatives that make staff feel engaged, informed, involved. Um, because we know, in actual fact, that has a fairly direct impact, not just on their performance, but on how well they feel. So engagement, I think, is absolutely key. The second element for me is influence. So it goes without saying, and I kind of add it to, to, to the colleagues' issue about the business case. One of the things you want in the business case is what the staff think. So you, you should never see a business case that doesn't actually have the views of a large number of staff in it, because the health and wellbeing programme should directly describe what your staff want. And then the third element for me is what we know about mental health and physical health. So there is no health without mental health. So there are a whole range of programmes where we can help people feel uh, uh, better physically and better, better mentally. And if we look at Sanander, we look at BT, we look at a lot of these companies, they don't just have five-a-day vegetables and fruit, they have five-a-day for mental health and well-being. You go on to their email systems, their, their uh, computer systems, and on the front page you can directly go into self-help material on stress. Um, so a whole range of, so for me there are three component parts. Engagement, what I call influence, and then using best evidence around literally what we can do to make people feel uh, uh, better. Uh, uh, when I say better, physically, mentally better. The second question, so what, what would I, so how would I influence the board? Well, I'll tell you what we have done, and then you can blow raspberries or do what you like with it, really, because I'm up to it in my neck, and I ain't turning back now because I think it's going to work. Um, so we decided that we had to find a way of really getting a sense of what our staff wanted. And the organisations had four or five years of very poor staff survey results. So we wanted to find a way of, of reaching very deep into the organisation and giving people an opportunity to tell the board uh, uh, what they felt was going wrong, what they felt could make things better in terms of health and wellbeing. So we, we stole something from Harvard, which is essentially called a fishbowl. So we identified 10% of our staff, 40, uh, 40 reporters. These were people drawn from a diagonal cut across the organisation, managed for uh, discipline, seniority, gender, uh, uh, racial background. And then they went and interviewed 10 reportees. 
So 400 conversations took place about six months ago inside my organisation. And they were asked two open questions. What's it, what is it like to work in West London Mental Health Trust and how could you make it better? And then they came back and the board had to sit around them in a fishbowl and had to listen to the results of that, those 40 reports. They weren't allowed to say, yeah, Bert, you don't understand. You know, we did this last week. They had to stay <coughs> silent. And from that program, from that experience, we now have six themes that are jointly led by an executive director and a reporter. And I won't bore you with the detail, but those six themes are drawn directly from the 400 conversations that took place across the organisation during a period of about two months. So that's, that's for me what I want. That's what I want. That's what influences a board. Okay, good, clever, articulate executive directors do that. But what really influences a board, in my view, is a sense that they are hearing very directly from the staff that they're there to serve. Um, uh, uh, so hopefully I've answered both the questions and the second answer is literally what we're doing it's something we're in we're in the middle of question for clive how should we measure success and what sort of outcomes are you looking for as a board um measuring success i think could be done in a in a number of ways there are the obvious ones um we've already touched on this a couple of times this, this afternoon if you start um, your financial year, and let's take sickness absence, levels are at 5.1%. You can measure where you are at the end of the financial year. You know, if you've got your 4% improvement, that's a, that's a measurement. But also being able to put that into what that means from a financial uh, point of view. Um, other measures might be what your information on um, is telling you about why members of staff might be leaving or perhaps why people are staying, if that's coming through your um, surveys, um, your, your staff surveys. Other measures could be the, earlier on I talked about the detail of why people are having time away from the workplace. So you could have a, um, a, an issue, I, I picked on musculoskeletal for example, you can look at that at the start of the year and measure that at the end of the year. There might be other examples too, but at least you know where you started and then where you have finally finally ended um, ended up. I think other measures though could be slightly different. One of the things we haven't touched on yet is the role of the line manager and I think that in this topic it's absolutely critical because all of the evidence suggests that the number one reason why someone is likely to either leave or be away from uh, the workplace is because of their interaction with the um, with their line manager. And in fact, in the Borman review, I think the data suggested that when people feel as if they are listened to by their line manager, they are likely to have a third less time off from the workplace compared to those uh, compared to those that that don't. So. Um, a measure could be a line manager's confidence in some of those soft skills of listening with colleagues and also their ability to be able to engage with um, a range of difficult or challenging conversations, which might include those conversations about getting people, uh, getting people back to work. 
Um, I think for us, our role as a board would be looking at that on at the um, at the macro level. So a couple of months ago, data came out about uh, overall levels of sickness and absence across the healthcare sector, and uh, I'm quite sure it's gone up 1.5 billion pounds of of cost. There's been an increase of uh, one just under 1%, or is it 1.4%? And that's added an additional cost. So if we look at it across the country, for myself and my colleagues, we should be looking at some of those data, actually doing it now, and seeing where we are uh, come the end of March and the start of April to see whether this kind of engagement um, has worked. Maybe some of the ideas that we've just heard about in terms of the uh, the fishbowl, can some of those be um, talked about and implemented elsewhere in other parts of the NHS? And might that therefore then make a difference if it's made a difference in one trust? Might it make a difference across uh, across others? Anything I'd add, I agree with all that. Anything I'd add is patience. So it's a rich source of information. So one of the outcomes, there are a series of outcomes. They are all indirect, mm. as many of these are, I think. Mm. But, but patients are very perceptive. So there are uh, a series of questions and outcomes that you can relate to, to patient outcomes. So patients have a very clear view about <clears throat> whether their care is being delivered by informed, healthy staff or not. So that's the only thing I'd add. But I, I agree, they're indirect. Question for Jeff. You'll have seen many business cases in your time as a finance director. What makes a successful one really stand out? I, I think it's, it's touching on all the aspects that our colleagues uh, have have given in terms of, as I say, there's the very clear hard metrics around that because there will be a strong governance process and it's articulating very clearly what is the, the added benefit of, of this and, you know, as as people have said already, I mean, in the mo- a, a motivated engaged workforce is good for your bottom line, it's good for it's good for outcomes. And how many times, if you're looking at our real lives, how many times have you been served by somebody in the shop? If they're looking a bit, we've recorded this song, if they're looking a bit disenchanted, I was going to say pissed off, but if they're looking pissed off, actually, um, you know, you go away thinking, right, that was my great experience. If they're really sort of high, how, you know, the Americanism of how nice they are and all that sort of stuff, actually go away thinking, right, what a, what a pleasant, as pleasant an experience as shopping could be. So I think it's having the hard metrics and it's having the soft added value. Because the reality of all this is that all our organisations have limited resources and you're bidding for something in a, in a, in a environment of limited resources. But I think there's some compelling evidence that actually things in this area actually make real difference, real benefit. And you know, as I said at the outset, the thing that really surprised me is when, when we had a colleague said, finance directors don't, don't often support these things. Because actually, it's, it's, this really makes sense. And if, if, we, if we, we were in a work environment um, and you were overspent, I'd, we'd have a real difficult, difficult conversation. So I'm not, I'm not into hugging trees and wearing a woolly jumper and all that sort of stuff. I'm really sort of focused on on finance and outcomes, but I think there's some real added benefit around this. 
and this really does make sense. I wouldn't just be saying I'm not that sort of person. I wouldn't just say it, it sounds good. Um, and I just just think that you know, there's just so much wealth of evidence, and you just you just need to know the buttons you have to push. You know how you have to show how this makes a return, how this changes our sickness rates, or changes our retention rates, or improves our friends and family test, or uh, actually improves morale in the organisation or improves staff engagement. Uh, and, and things like the fishbowl, exercises like that, you know, they make a, a difference. We, I'm sure all of us, I'm sure everyone in this room has organ, ha, in our organisations have exercises where you actually try and ask staff, what do you think, how can we make a difference? And we, I started something in East Kent where we, we, we try something, and everyone said, oh, it's going to cost you a fortune. It's really going to... And it actually hasn't saved me a fortune. And we've done things around sort of a staff physio scheme where actually you can see a cause and effect when we've introduced this and sickness rates have gone off, have gone down for uh, short term, sort of two or three day sicknesses. And you know, that just makes sense to me. Question for Steve. I'd like you to try and imagine you're not quite as engaged as you actually are for this question. How do we get and keep board members' attention so that health and wellbeing becomes a regular agenda item? So you want me to imagine I'm on a board where quite a lot of the board directors, both Neds and executives, go, this is all for tree huggers and woolly jumper wearers. Well. I mean, I don't want to, I, I, essentially, I think we're distilling down what you've heard from the three of us, because it, it does seem to me you, you would have had to have been very unlucky with your NEDs and executives to have got a group that didn't understand the argument that was put forward just now. So even if you didn't care, so, so for me, there is, a, there is not just a performance financial argument, there's a moral argument. So I, I have a duty of care. Uh, we, we happen, I think, to be demonstrating that that duty of care has a direct link to the, to the care we provide patients. So I, I, I think um, it, I, I'm, I'm finding it hard to think back over my 20 years as a CEO uh, to think of a NED or an executive director who I couldn't have influenced by putting this argument forward, either because they just saw the financial gain, either because they saw the system was going to hit them on the head with a stick if they didn't deliver a target. So I, I, I find it very difficult to imagine a board, particularly in the last two years, with the Keogh report, with the Francis report, um, uh, with um, two or three uh, pretty damning CQC reports. So I, I find it very difficult to imagine how you wouldn't get a board to do it. The bigger challenge for me is the second part of your question. So how do you get how do you move this from being a business case where you're asking for an amount of money to it actually be seeing as a as a as a key metric? I think the way you do that is to get your board to engage very frequently with your staff. So you you generate conversations, not not just visits but you actually think through, in the way we're trying to, how you actually set up uh, numerous conversations between staff and board members. Because if you get those conversations going, uh, even the crustiest executive director 
or the crustiest non-executive director sees firsthand uh, uh, what engaged, enthusiastic, uh, uh, um, valued staff feel like. So it, it is far easier now than when we attempted to do this 10 years ago. Um, you know, I think we actually do have the data. Uh, are you familiar with Professor Michael West's data? Yeah. You'd have to be a pretty, pretty closed board director to say, well, that might apply to the rest of the NHS, but doesn't apply to West London. So I think it's a combination of engagement, getting those conversations going and delivering the evidence. And I'm not going to repeat what makes a good business case because I thought it, I think you've had it described to you really well. Can you just add something because I agree with Paul. I, I think I see loads of business cases, not just in this area, lots of areas, and most of them are terrible because actually they're not written in the language that makes sense to the person who's reading it. So they're probably written from the writer's perspective, not from the reader's perspective. And I think it's around knowing the language to write to include and the and the metrics and the quantification to include in the business case. Because that's what sells it. Somebody, some, if somebody'd written, let's get some physiotherapists to give everyone a, a bit of musculoskeletal massage and whatever, that would have probably wouldn't have seen the light of the day. Where somebody actually turned it into, and what you'll see is sickness rates drop from X to Y because lots of people go off for mm. one or two days. Actually, they wrote it in a language that somebody even stick as me can understand it, and it makes sense to the reader. And so if you, I, I would always suggest, even if you write something to say, buy me, a, buy me a brand new piece of kit, write it in the language that works for the reader. And often people, we don't even write it in the language that works for us, which is, might be different. Well, I'd just like to throw what we've just been talking about back to the audience, if I can, because speaking with a HR hat on and being in an organisation working in HR for many years, um, HR has bad press. I, I, I'm saying HR because I'm assuming the bulk of you work in the HR function. No. And okay, okay, right. It's a it's a mixed group, right? Okay. So forgive me. Um, but the point that I was going to make for those that are in in HR, I hope you will recognise that sometimes HR has had a bit of a bad press. I'm seeing nods around the room because of its failure to be able to present the business case, because of its failure to demonstrate that it's close to business rather than being a function out there on its own. So I think if I was to present something back uh, to our colleagues this afternoon, it would be to really try and grab a hold of this, this aspect around uh, the business case to make it uh, relevant. Um, so that you're working really close with your colleagues from other functions and not just um, on an isolated basis in your own function. Thank you.